Well, good morning. I'm Eric Anderson, one of the elders here at Faith Church, and it's really my honor to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 29. We're actually going to uh, pound through three chapters this morning. We're going to uh, finish the book, actually, of 1 Samuel. It's been quite a journey over the last several months. And, you know, it was really fun for me to say the words, an elder here at Faith Church, because over the last year, I've actually taken a sabbatical from the elder team. Um, I had served probably almost continuously for about 16 years on the elder board here, and really um, in part because of some of the, the concepts we're going to talk about this morning needed, needed some time away just to clear my head. Um, and it's been, it was a really, really good season. The title of the message is Des Desertion and Faithfulness. And if there's one thing I would ask that you might take away this morning, it's this, that God will accomplish his purposes and fulfill his promises despite our exhaustion, our fear, and our impatience. You know, the reality of Bible stories, of narratives, is that some of them are really, really exciting, fun, a big climax, a great story, um, and others, not so much. Um, the, this morning, the, the message is important and helpful, but the actual events are, are anticlimactic. They're, they're difficult. And that's how the end, that's how 1 Samuel ends, is really on a downer. We're going to be able to, to uh, glean some really important principles from God's Word. But let me show you, uh, by way of a visual, kind of a contrast. Do you remember, I don't know, six, eight weeks ago, Pastor Mike preached that well-known passage from, uh, da uh, from 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath? That's one of those kind of climatic stories, right? I got in this mug for his birthday, okay? And, and it summarizes kind of the twist that he had on the message, which is that Goliath uh, was opposed and killed by David, but David doesn't represent us. He represents God himself and God our rescuer. So that, that was the point of, of Mike's message, and I thought, perfect. I've, I've immortalized his message in a coffee mug. So, so then I, I got to thinking that for this morning's message, I wanted to design a new coffee mug. Okay, so this is now for 1 Samuel 29 through 31. Um, I am confident it will not sell at all. But this, this, this morning, we find ourselves and David hiding behind the Philistines. Really, David ended up being a deserter for uh, several chapters in this book. And uh, he is more like the armor bearer for the Philistines. Now, that's a picture of Goliath, and Goliath is long gone. But I'm picturing he probably had sons, and they were big too. I don't know. But the reality is that the Philistines were the enemies of God's people, and David took and made a partnership with them for his own protection. So that's what this coffee mug represents, and honestly, sometimes we do the same thing. So uh, forgive me for my bad artwork and for the fact that I'll never sell coffee mugs. But let me give you a two-sentence flyover of, of this message this morning. Once upon a time, a man named David was exhausted, impatient, and terrified of King Saul, so he deserted to the Philistines. But his family and possessions were ransacked by the Amalekites, and the Philistines killed Saul and his sons without David's help. The end. That's, that's the three chapters, okay, in a nutshell. But you know what? In all that drama and all that negative, it, there's great hope, and there's a great and important message. 
Again, it's about God. God will accomplish his purposes and fulfill his promises despite our exhaustion, our fear, and impatience. God will do this through us. Sometimes God does it in us as he changes our hearts, and sometimes he does it in spite of us. So before I go any further, I'm going to offer a quick word of prayer. Lord, there are seasons of our lives that do nothing but terrify us and exhaust us and cause us to lament how long it's taking for your promises to be fulfilled. But I pray this morning that in this message we will be reminded, as David was, that our only hope for these difficult days are, is found in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's open chapter 29. Um, I've titled this chapter, David the Faithful Deserter. And the first uh, element of the story is that, Dave, as I already mentioned, really, David partnered with the enemies of God's people. Do you remember uh, a couple weeks ago, back in chapter 27, Achish, the king of the Philistines, was bragging on his newfound friend David and said, this guy has become an utter stench to his own people. So Achish was kind of proud and happy that he had David alongside of him. David was clearly a powerful leader, and his men were uh, completely amazing. Now we're going to pick up here in chapter 29, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at, at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is, is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing by in their hundreds and by their thousands, and David and his men were passing by on the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. So David was, this guy Achish was proud of David. He was a faithful deserter. And you know, the obvious question, though, that we need to ask is, why? Why did David make that choice? What was going on in his heart? And I'm going um, to speculate and, and hopefully unravel, uh, unfold from Scripture three things. One is David's exhaustion. Another is his fear. And finally, one is, would be David's impatience. And let's talk about exhaustion for a moment. You know, if you have been with us through the whole narrative of 1 Samuel, you'll see that Saul has been chasing David like, uh, I don't know, it's like a wily coyote and the roadrunner for, for weeks and months and maybe years. And David is exhausted and his enemies uh, included, later on included his own son. Um, we can get a glimpse into David's heart in his psalms that he wrote uh, pr probably later on. Psalm 3, David said, I would, oh, that I could lay down and sleep. In Psalm 4, he says, someday in peace I'll sleep. Psalm 6, he says, I am languishing and weary. Psalm 13, he says, my only sleep is death. And finally, in Psalm 22, where it, which is also a scripture that is fulfilled in Christ, he said that my strength is dried up. You ever been chronically sleep deprived? You ever gone through days and weeks without the, the proper amount of rest? It tends to make us make bad decisions. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Certainly, one of the worst decisions you can make when you're really, really tired is to get behind the wheel of a car and start driving in the middle of the night. I don't know how many times I've driven uh, between here and Colorado the last 17 years, and it's a scary thing when you're so tired that you're practically falling asleep. 
The reality of our decision-making is that it's bad because we literally never get to sleep on things, you know. And I know that's true for myself as well. You know, I get more and more tired as the day goes on. I'm sure a lot of you do. And by the evening, I, everything is a big deal. And my decision-making at night is, can really be bad. You know, if those people that call us all the time about their, trying to sell extended warranties, if they called me late at night, I'd probably buy because, well, one, to get rid of them, and the other, well, which may not happen, but the other is because my judgment is clouded. And David's choice to find refuge with the Philistines is, it's actually kind of logical, and it's almost smart in a, at a certain way. It's very practical. Uh, David was a faithful deserter because he knew that Saul wouldn't chase him into the land of the Philistines. They were too powerful for him. But, you know, in David's decision-making, and in his exhaustion, there's no evidence of him being close to the Lord. There's no interaction that we read about. There's no evidence of David trusting God, resting in God, crying out to God. He only cries out to the Philistines, you know. And so I think the evidence is strong that David was not close to the Lord at that point in his life. Let me ask you a question. Do you sometimes find the Christian life to be exhausting? Are you, like, weary and worn out by the, maybe your own expectations or the expectations of the church or just the priorities and the, the amount of busyness of your own life? I know that's certainly true for me. Um, I was just looking at some book titles here, and maybe these are good books. I don't know. I've only read one of them, but they make me tired just reading these titles. Uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective Christians, um, a book called Do Hard Things. I did read, and it's okay. Um, Scriptures to Help You Accomplish More. That one may, I will not pick up, um, at least not at this season of my life. Making More of Your Time, or finally my favorite, How to Overachieve. You know, that's great, okay? I'm, all, I'm not against these things. I've, I've been so busy all my life, but the reality is they, these things want to make me take a nap rather than read them. Um, my friend Steve Moore says this all the time in practically every conversation I have with him, that when we embrace a God who is an exclusively doing God, an accomplishing God, we are prone to destroying relationships with, with the Lord and with one another. And I find that to be really, really true. And in fact, I do it all the time. Um, this week is three years since my wife, very unex Teresa, un unexpectedly passed away, just died in the night, uh, just three years ago this week. And the, really the first couple years, everyone copes differently, right? The way that I decided to cope with things was to get as busy as possible. Um, I stayed on the elder team. I got involved in our missions team. Um, I've been on the preaching rotation. I've led small groups. I've been part of a men's group. I've been serving in the church, not to mention all the other life priorities. Um, I don't know that that's been best, but it's how I dealt with it, at least for the last two years. Um, and then about a year ago, as I mentioned already, I needed to take time away, and that was really good as well, to focus and maybe ask God, well, what do you want to do with me now for the rest of my life? You know, rest is at the heart of the gospel. There is no rest for us except in Christ. Our, our, we find salvation when we finally are willing to rest. Instead of stop 
Instead of trying to appease God and please God with what we are doing, that's exactly the opposite of what the gospel is. Jesus Christ said to believe in him, to trust him, that he has accomplished the work that we could not, which is to be the sacrifice for our, our sin, paying the penalty for the sin, rising again in victory over death. This is the Sabbath rest of God. In, in Matthew, Jesus said of himself, Come to me, all you who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. And then in, in Hebrews, we read about Jesus Christ, who is our Sabbath rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There's, an, there's a reference to creation in the seventh day when God himself rested. And I just wonder if, if David wouldn't have been served better in, that, in this season of his life, if he had simply trusted in the Sabbath rest of God rather than in constant motion, constant action, and in the choice to find his rest in the Philistines. Secondly is the element of fear, which is closely related to exhaustion, and I think David is clearly fearful at this point in his life. And I, I read this little medical journal blurb uh, recently that said, that rest is not only an antidote for us being tired, it's also an antidote for fear and for anxiety. And I know that's personally true for myself. I already mentioned what happens for me to me at night as, as the day drags to a close. I suddenly find myself stressing and worrying and fretting about things that didn't bother me in the least when I had some coffee in my veins and when I, I was awake and alert. And uh, so I have to spend time with the Lord at night, um, in addition to in the morning, because I just find myself getting all wrapped up and worried about things that, that uh, I don't know why, but during the daylight, it just wasn't going to bother me. And I kind of wonder if David is experiencing the same thing. Back in chapter 27, David said that, I am fearful that Saul will kill me, and so I will escape to the Philistines. Now, this is by the way, completely untrue, what David just said there. It's, it's just that kind of bad self-talk. God had promised to David the throne and that Saul was going to be removed. And he, he had essentially promised David he would not be killed by the hand of Saul. But David's fear got the best of him and made him irrational. And finally is, is an issue of impatience with David. You know, back in chapter 16 of the book of 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel told David, you, are, you will succeed, you will uh, follow King Saul when he is rejected. And he basically anointed him king. But the problem was, he didn't give him a crown and a, and a big throne to sit on. It was a promise that this would happen in the future. And then real life comes along and all the conflict and drama of interacting with Saul. And David got tired of waiting. And he basically took things into his own hands. In fact, he was, it, it made sense to him to partner with the Philistine leader Achish. In, in verse 8 of our, our chapter 29 here, David says, Oh, that I might go with you and fight against our enemy Saul. That we would, I would fight against our enemy Saul. Now, you know what's, you know what's ironic? Think about all the times and all the events in 1 Samuel, where David refused to raise his hand against God's anointed king. 
And he had every opportunity to kill, to kill Saul. He, he went to great lengths to show Saul that he was faithful, that he was trusting God, that he was not going to raise his hand against the king. That was in the daylight. You know, now there's a dark moment of his life, and David's making a very bad choice to literally raise his hand against the king and go against him uh, in battle. And um, this is God's king. He was anointed by, he was chosen by God, and no matter how bad he is. And uh, David is, in, is driven, I believe, by impatience here as well. He's tired of waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. And, you know, I do think that uh, bad theology in the Christian church today is sometimes driven by this same kind of impatience. We get mixed up between what God has promised in eternity and what God has promised today, Right? You know, in eternity, we are promised the ultimate in prosperity and of health with no tears in our life, no sin left in our life. No, we, we, we live in God's mansions with victory over our enemies, with, with power, ruling and reigning with God for all eternity. Aren't those, aren't those great promises? The problem is when we try to say, oh, cool, that's for now. It's time. You know, I need to take dominion over the earth and over all of God's governments. And, and I, I'm promised all these things about my, my health. And we just get mixed up. And we create a, a, a self-centered theology that's based on impatience. But in all of this, here's the good news. And it's, it's really, really good news. God did not give up on David. And God does not give up on us. Even when, like that coffee mug picture, even when we're hiding behind someone we ought not, God will fulfill every promise that he's made to David, and he's going to fulfill every promise that he makes to us. Remember the takeaway. God will accomplish his purposes and fulfill his promises despite our exhaustion, our fear, and our impatience. And this brings us to the, the next point in, the, in this narrative. And that's simply this. God prevented David from lifting his hand. That was his plan. David had, had this great idea in mind. But picking up in uh, verse 9 of chapter 29, Achish answered David and said, I know that you're as blameless in my sight as an angel of God, but nevertheless my commanders have said, You shall not go up to me with me in battle. None, so now rise early in the morning, with your servants, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David sat out with his men early in the morning and returned to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Isn't it, isn't it so ironic that a completely godless king, or well, maybe not the king, but his, his leaders, knew better than David did about what would be best? They were suspicious of David's loyalties, that perhaps those loyalties might get divided uh, when, when the battle came. And you know what? i got to believe they're right. I mean, think about this. I know that David wanted to go up against Saul, but who was standing right beside Saul in all of this? It was Jonathan, David's best friend. And there would have been a moment in the battle where Saul and Jonathan and, his, and Jonathan's brothers were against fighting, fighting against David and his men. And that is just an unimaginable reality. And I, didn't, I don't know how David would have even navigated that. The truth is God prevented him from doing it. And that's a great thing. And I, you know what? I actually think that God does that for us all the time. 
I think there's times in my life where I really want to go off the deep end. I really want to just sin and do whatever I want. And God just says, no, I'm not going to let you. Now, there's times I do, but there's other times, and praise God, where he just prevents me from, uh, from getting in trouble as much as I want to. And a final observation from the first chapter, from chapter 29, God did not reject David. He didn't reject David. Now, David has made bad choices, and God had to thwart David's plan to do a bad thing. God saw David's desertion, but he never once gave up on him. He didn't give up on his, his promises to him. For his own name's sake, for the promises that he had made to David, God worked all things in accordance with his will, and he extended incredible grace to David. We'll see some of that grace now in chapter 30. Uh, I've entitled chapter 30, God Delivers and Awakens David. The first part of this narrative in the first verses are the tribulations and a turning point, a turning point in David's heart. I'm going to summarize verses 1 through 5 rather than reading them. David and his men returned home, as they were told to do, to find that the Amalekites, another bunch of bad guys, had taken captive all their wives and their children and all their stuff and had burned their city and had disappeared. And so they were just distraught. The scripture says that they were weeping until they had no more strength to weep. They were so distraught and so miserable. In fact, then I think the only energy they had might be shown in verse 6 here. David was greatly distressed for these people spoke of stoning him because all the people were so bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. But then we get to the turning point. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And for the first time in a number of chapters, we see David reaching out to the Lord. You know, I know you know this is true. God uses tribulations all the time to regain our focus on him. Doesn't he do that? He's probably doing it in your life right now. There's some kind of trial, some kind of difficulty that God is working through to gain your attention and to maybe wake you up from something. I know he's doing it with me. While, while he and his men were attempting to kill Saul, all that they had were taken away by the Amalekites and they were left with nothing. And then there was a turning point. And I want to, I want to read the, the story of, of the turning point in David's heart, uh, starting in verse 7. So David said to Ab Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So uh, Ab I can't say that name. Ab Abathar? I don't know. Brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? God answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, they came to the brook Bezor, Bezor, boy, I'm having trouble with words here, where those who were left behind stayed. So David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook. So at last and finally, David does what God intended all along. He seeks counsel by uh, interacting with the priest. He seeks God's will, which is represented by that ephod, which is kind of a, 
a, a religious garment that the priest and or maybe David uh, used to inquire of the Lord. He hears from God and he obeys the Lord. And in all of that, you can see him praying and saying, God, what, what am I, what do I do? And it, it, it took this gigantic crisis to bring him to this point. In, in last week's message, we saw Saul inquire of the Lord and God wouldn't answer him. And the difference is the heart. The difference is that Saul was just completely and practically involved saying, I, I, I'm in trouble, God, what do I do? Whereas David, I think you really see a change of heart and you see him inquiring of the Lord and being strengthened by the Lord. David humbled himself and inquired of God and God told him exactly what to do. And then he was immediately faithful and obedient. So in the next part of the narrative, with power, confidence, and faith, David recaptured all that was lost. Let me summarize verses 11 through 18. With the help of an Egyptian servant uh, who the Amalekites had, uh, who had been kind of left behind because I guess he had gotten weak or sick, um, they found out, he found out where the Amalekites were. And 400 of his men uh, find these Amalekite raiders. They, they destroy them, recover everything exactly as, as God had promised. So this section ends with verse 19. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. So in contrast to these last 14 months of David kind of wandering with the Philistines, in this case, David believed what God had pr promised him, acted on it, and was victorious immediately. And one of the other things that David did is he had learned something and, learned, and had an opportunity to act quickly on what he had learned. What he had learned was that God is gracious. God is patient. And God understands exhaustion and fear. Um, in the next part of, this, of chapter 30, um, David extends the grace that he had just received. David extends God's grace that he had just received. The, the men, who the 400 that went and, and did, did the wondrous thing of, of uh, destroying the Amalekites and getting everything back, started to grumble about the 200 that were too tired and exhausted to go with them. And by the way, how exhausted must they have been to not pursue those who had taken their wives and children? Okay, that is not a small thing. There was something special going on there. There was something deeper than just being sleepy. And I think it was probably to maybe even uh, highlight this opportunity that David had to extend grace. Basically what David says is, hey, God was faithful to us. Everyone gets back everything that belongs to them, whether you stayed behind or were part of the battle. That's how David dealt with that. He extended the grace that he had just received. He was quick to see what God had done. In fact, he probably was thinking about his own exhaustion and the bad choices he had made. And he was thinking about God's kindness and compassion, and he extended it to those that were a part of his team. This is a great way to, to show how to really learn something, and especially when it comes to God's grace. The first step is to receive God's grace, and the second step is to pass it along to somebody else. There is nothing more helpful that, uh, to understand grace than to have to give it to someone else, right? It's one thing to, to say, oh, Lord, I need your grace. It's another to see somebody who deserves 
anything but kindness and grace and compassion, but you give it to him anyway. By definition, that's what it is. Is Grace wouldn't be grace if someone had earned it. And that's how it is that David came to quickly learn what God had done for him. Now let's jump into chapter 31, the last chapter of the book of 1 Samuel. I've titled it, God Fulfills His Promise to David. And this is a really hard chapter, okay? It's, it's a downer. It's tragic. It's a story of defeat and death and failure brought on by Saul's disobedience. But it's also going to reflect the aspect of God, his sovereign hand and his goodness in the midst of trials. So let me read for you the passage about the death of Saul and Jonathan. And again, God's hand, sovereign hand in this tribulation, starting in uh, it's verses 1 through 7 of chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his own sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and he and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in those cities. So as, as this book comes to a close, you're like, this is awful. The bad guys have won. It's like, what kind of a story is this? King Saul is dead. His sons are dead. Israel's scattering. They've lost their cities. And God's people have got to be lamenting. They've got to be miserable in their grief and their sorrow and frustration, their fear it's got to have been just an absolute crisis for their, themselves. These Philistines hate God, and now they're the ones that are winning the day. But this brings us to a, a really timeless principle that I want to spend a moment on. It's been part of God's plan from the beginning that godless people are used by God. Godless people are used by God. It's true over and over and over again in the Bible. You start with the story of, of uh, Pharaoh and Moses, where God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that, that he intentionally brought on more and more different plagues to uh, torment the Egyptians and show his power until finally uh, Pharaoh relented and let those people go, and, and Moses was lifted up to, to raise and bring those people out of, out of slavery. And before that... Think about how that, that all of Israel was really born in Egypt was through Joseph. Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers. And in, in the amazing stories that you read in Genesis, Joseph is raised up to a point of leadership 
second in command only to Pharaoh in all the land of Egypt. In fact, he even had told his brothers at, a re, at their family reunion, hey, I know you, uh, ex you planned evil for me, but God was going to use it for this good. And so he understood that as well. And now you have the Philistines who are just ransacking uh, Israel, killed their king, killed their sons. But you know what? God had ordained all of that. He had said that, that Saul would be killed and that, uh, that David would ascend to the throne. And maybe most importantly, there's a time, hundreds of years later, when God raised up a betrayer, Judas Iscariot, and he raised up uh, the unspiritual Jews and a selfish leader of the Romans named Pontius Pilate to intentionally bring about the death of his own son, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of David. And he did that very intentionally. This is not making lemonades out of lemons. God designed this from the very beginning that we might see this and recognize that Jesus Christ has con conquered death, has paid the penalty for our sins, and that our, our role is to believe and trust in him and obtain the hope and the joy of eternal life. That's all there is to it. And that's what God has done in the midst of the worst trials that you could ever imagine. So the final part of our narrative of chapter 31 is a little tiny story of faithfulness. Faithfulness in the worst of circumstances. And this closes out the book of 1 Samuel. Um, to summarize verses 8 through 13, the Philistines much like Saul knew what happened, dismembered the bodies of Saul and his sons and mistreated them badly. But the inhabitants of, of Jabesh risked their lives to recover those bodies and give them a proper burial. And that was a deed that was praised later on in 2 Samuel by, by King David. I'm, yeah, I gave you a spoiler. David's going to be anointed king. And uh, it's, I'm just imagining what these people of Jabesh were doing and thinking, how in the midst of their worst grief that they've ever had in their life, in the midst of the death of their king, the death of the king's sons, they found the strength and courage to be faithful in one small thing, to give them a proper burial. That's all they could do. There was nothing else to do. There's nothing left to do. Bury their dead. And that ends the, that ends the narrative. The last part of my message this morning I call the next chapter in book, and it doesn't mean I'm going to jump into 2 Samuel. It means that for us, I want to look at maybe the next steps and the next chapter in, in our lives and some, some ways that we possibly might be able to apply some of the principles that we've seen play out in the life of David here in 1 Samuel. So three simple things. Number one, I think it's time for us to lay our exhaustion and our fear and our impatience at the Lord's feet and simply trust in him. And I, as I'm shown in the coffee mug, we, we do this sometimes. We go the wrong direction with where we put our confidence and trust when we're exhausted, when we're fearful, when we're impatient. Let me give you some examples of some mistakes I think that we make sometimes. Number one, I think sometimes we get so exhausted by trying to do all these hard things for God that we disconnect from God himself. And we have this thinking that uh, we just need to do more, and then we get tired of doing more, and so we look for rest and protection someplace else besides God. Number two, sometimes we get so fearful 
about the current events in, in our country and the world that, uh, that we're worried that we don't have enough power, enough clout uh, in, in our country, in our church, and in the world. And so we'll align ourselves with more powerful people. But you know, those more powerful people are awful, like, like QAnon. And that's a political cult. I'm sorry, that's what it is. And I was really kind of grossed out by seeing uh, Christians carrying, uh, you know, banners and crosses and whatnot and displays of prayer just before uh, they went and stormed the Capitol building. That, that was the kind of unholy alliance, honestly, that was similar in my mind to how uh, David decided to respond when he was uh, fearful of, of not having enough power in his life. Um, I just want to encourage us that, that is not, that's not how God has called us to, to be. But on the other end of the spectrum is another mistake we make, that Christians make a lot. And that is we get so fearful about this rising idea of power within the church that we align ourselves with skeptics and with agnostics and atheists and doubters, and we start to blast the church because of the mistakes that another part of the church is making. And we become just as bad as the, the, the unbelievers. Uh, we think that it's, it's okay to deconstruct the, the current evangelical church and, and its gospel and to reinvent it in some politically correct image. You know, to, to, and I'm just as concerned about that kind of a response as well, where the skeptics and, and cynics start talking about the truth of God's word in, a term, in terms that you realize that we've drawn battle lines over this stuff. The truth of the gospel has been lost because of the, because of the concerns about, and the, the fissures, the dividing of God's people. And it's sometimes a political division, but it's often a, a division of perspective on, on what the church is supposed to be about. Fourthly, Christians get uh, fearful and distrusting of all leaders because of the extraordinary and the visible failures of a few. And suddenly all leaders are being brought into suspicion. It would be along the lines of saying, well, Saul was a horrible king, so all kings are horrible, so I am never paying attention to any of God's kings ever in my life. And you just live a life of a rebel. Uh, it happens in the church all the time. You know, you, you get this perspective on somebody's failure, and you start saying things, you hear Christians say things like, oh, the, they're all just in it for the money. You know, those pastors, those highly overpaid pastors, they're in it for the money. I'm talking about ours in this case, okay? You know, I, I know there's people that are in it for the money. I know there's bad leaders. I know they fail. I know they fall, and they should fall, right? But the thing is, what we don't want to do is get this wrong thinking that the church is just a bunch of hypocrites led by other hypocrites, and I want nothing to do with it. That is walking away from God's design and plan for us as the body of Christ. He knows. He knows. He knows the, right, the rightness, he knows the good leaders, and he knows the leaders that will fail. And much like David was interacting and dealing with some of these frustrations with a bad king, you know, we, we need to avoid the temptation to walk away from God's people because of the failures of a few. And finally, Christians become impatient with the, the promises of God, and it results in that self-centered theology I mentioned before. We think we need to take things into our own hands when it comes to God's promises, and life is just about having the best life you can have right now. 
And when we do that, we end up with a theology that denies God's power and causes us to get easily discouraged and often even walk away from the faith. So maybe some of these thinking, bad thinking things describe you a little bit. Maybe they don't. I hope they don't. Uh, if you identify with any of them, um, like me, maybe it's time for you to think differently about the current events and about the, the struggles of life. Maybe it's time to take your eyes off the chaos and simply trust the Lord and focus on him. When, when David kind of grew up through the, the leadership of Israel later on, he learned about this and wrote about it in Psalm 51. He said, the sacrifices of God are not in his activities, and I added those words, in action, activities, and, and events, but rather a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. This is a man after God's heart, and may that be true of us as well. So a second challenge for us is to accept by faith that God is working all things together for good to, to, for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28. Remember that takeaway that I began this message with. God will accomplish his purposes and fulfill his promises despite our exhaustion, fear, and impatience. And he will do it any way he feels like, any way he needs to. He'll do it through us. He'll do it in us. He'll do it in spite of us. Um, the truth is, I think we might be trying to do too much sometimes. At least that's how it feels for me right now in my phase of life. And finally this, a simple thing. Be faithful in one small thing. Be faithful in one small thing. That encouragement comes from that little story of the people of Jabesh who buried Saul and his, his family. They were faithful in one small thing. And sometimes that's all we can do. And often that's all God wants us to do, is be faithful in one small thing. About three years ago, as I mentioned, when Teresa passed away, I remember just within days sitting at a restaurant with some of my kids and some of my adopted kids. I've got a bunch of them that have lived with us through the, age, through the years. And, um, and we were all together just kind of, I won't call it celebrating, probably just lamenting life without Teresa and one of the young men spoke up he was single at the time and he said I got this girl and I'm crazy about her and I want to ask her to marry me and I don't know what to do because I'm so scared well it just turned out that this girl that he described had just spent a weekend with Teresa and me just a few weeks before and I knew without a doubt that she was crazy about him and that she wanted to marry him but I hadn't told him that but here I found myself in that conversation, speaking up like a prophet. I said, don't you chicken out. You do this thing. You do what's on your heart. You do it. You better do it. Don't you, do the, don't you get afraid. You know? And he didn't, and they lived happily ever after, by the way. Um, I share that story because it was a small thing that God did through me for someone else, and as I drove away from that meeting that night, I was, so, I was in tears with joy. Uh, with joy. Not because I wasn't thinking at that moment of, uh, well, of course I was, of thinking about my loss. But what I was thinking was, God is still at work in my grief, and God is not done with me. God is not done. And some of you are experiencing things just like that. Well, God is not done with you. If you will be faithful in one small thing, that's all he's asking you to do today. 
I don't know what God's got. I don't know what he's doing in your life. I don't know what he's doing in my life half the time or maybe any of the time. But I do know that when we're faithful, when we take one small step of obedience, God will, I will meet God in that and it will be a blessing. And I just wonder, and I, I believe that the people of Jabesh felt like when they honored God and buried Saul and his sons after that crushing defeat, maybe the question they were responding to was simply this, how can I be faithful today? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of death, in the midst of desertion and failure, that you are good. You're faithful, you're sovereign, you're gracious and loving and kind towards us. And I just pray we would really believe that. That we would take to, to heart all these things. You don't get tired. You, you don't get, you're not afraid like we are. You, you show incredible patience far beyond what we deserve. But I pray that we'd remember that there's another book to be written. Not just the book of Second Samuel, but the, the next chapter and book in our own lives. And I pray that as, as the story unfolds in our own lives, that we would be found to just be faithful today. Thanks for this good reminder from your word in Jesus' name. Amen.